Welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wine with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. In this episode, we'll talk about treatment options for cervical cancer. And it's actually been a while since we've done a podcast on this topic. So in addition to covering some of the current approaches to treatment, we'll also spend a bit of time on clinical trials and maybe some innovations that are in the pipeline. And then we'll tie all this back to kind of what the patient experience is like. And so that's a lot to cover. And to do that, we're talking today with Dr. Leslie Randall. She's an OBGYN with the Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center in Richmond, uh, where she's also a professor, as well as division head of gynecologic oncology. Dr. Randall, thank you for joining us. And let me tell you, I go back so far with VCU. Back when I was there, we were using the MCV Medical College of uh, Virginia terminology. So that probably dates myself a little bit. I think they, I think, thanks for having me, first of all. And, you know, I, I don't think they got rid of that terminology too far in the distant past. So, well, there yeah. you go. All right. I don't feel quite so, <laughs> I don't feel quite so removed from it. Well, let me jump in then. So, uh, as I understand it, really, we talk about cervical cancer treatment typically as some combination of surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. And I just wanted to have you talk a bit about the current, these current approaches to, to treating cervical cancer. And really, how does the cancer care team determine which therapies to use, how to pair them up? You just, I don't imagine it's a one-size-fits-all solution by any means. Oh, thanks for that question. You know, um, it's not a one-size-all, uh, one-size-fits-all situation. You're exactly right about that. So we really try to individualize our care um, to the patient based on their situation. Um, you know, I have to stop for one second and back up. We have a lot to talk about, but, you know, I can't talk about cervical cancer without saying that it's 100% preventable disease. Absolutely. So every time I see cervical cancer, I get sick to my stomach every single case because I know that it's preventable with vaccination, um, if you miss out on the vaccination opportunity, there's also pap screening and HPV testing, and those things are very effective. So we really shouldn't have cervical cancer, but we do. So let's talk about treatment. Um, you know, first of all, getting to a women's cancer doctor is really um, very important in getting the right treatment, especially for cervical cancer, because there are so many different options, as you alluded to. Um, the way that we decide what treatment is right for the patient is nearly completely determined by the stage of the cancer when the patient comes in. So our early stage cancers can be treated with surgery. Our more advanced cancers are either treated with radiation treatment with lower dose chemotherapies and then our more are what we call metastatic where the cancer is spread into other parts of the body like the lungs then we treat those patients with chemotherapy primarily. And we may use spot radiation here or there. Um, surgery and radiation are treatments that intend to cure patients. Um, so they're pretty aggressive um, because we want, we do them, you know, they're, they're time limited, we get them done, we're aggressive, but we hope that the patient never needs any more treatment in the future ever again. Chemotherapy is a little bit different and we can talk about that um, separately. I do wanna mention that you know, cervical cancer is a disease of younger women and some patients come to us having not had had children before. 
Um, so there are some options for them, provided the you know, cancer is detected at a very early stage. Um, we can sometimes preserve um, their fertility. Which speaks to why screening is so important so you can catch things early when treatment sounds like it's much more manageable. Absolutely. So you touched on advanced disease and uh, metastasis. Could you talk a little more about, I mean, what's, what's the prognosis for somebody with advanced disease? I, I'm, I'm sure it's much better than it was years ago, but those have got to be tough cases. Yeah, there are two types of advanced disease. Um, the first type is that radiation type advanced disease. And so if the cancer is, you know, confined in the pelvis where the radiation treatment can encompass the entire tumor, um, we can still cure those patients. And we do so about 65% of the time. Um, there are some variations in there, but overall about 65% of those women we can cure. Um, so clearly there's room for improvement there, right? Um, with the metastatic cancers, that's much, that prognosis unfortunately at this time is much worse, but you know, I've seen that change dramatically over the past 10 years. And I can sort of describe to you what that timeline has looked like okay. from my perspective. Um, you know, when 10 years ago, if a woman came in with metastatic cervical cancer, she was not going to be alive in six to eight months. And we just kind of knew that out of the gate. And we just didn't really have effective treatment for those women. Um, in the past 10 years, we've made a lot of progress in finding chemotherapies that help these women. Um, the current standard of care in the front, in the first line of treatment for women who have metastatic disease is a triplet of tre chemotherapy treatments. Two are standard chemotherapies, you know, the type that makes you throw up, the type that makes your hair fall out. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, where we're at right now still. Uh, but the third drug is a biological drug and it attacks the blood vessels in the tumor and it's called bevacizumab or Avastin is its trade name. So those three treatments, um, you know, in, in the clinical trial that found that treatment as being effective, the, what we call the median survival time or half of the patients were still alive at two years, which was a huge improvement over what we had previously seen. Um, but, you know, it, at, the, at the end of the day, it's still, for most of those patients, was not a curative treatment. And so even though we did a whole lot better, there's still room to improve. The second flip side of that fact that we're not curing people means they're going to need second line treatment down the road. And until, literally until the past year, we did not have a really effective second treatment for these women. And now, with immune therapy, we do have a second treatment. And so the most recent immune therapy clinical trial showed a median survival time of additional 12 months. So to me, that means, you know, a patient walks into my office with cervical cancer that is spread to their lungs. There is a reasonable expectation that that patient might be alive in three years, which was completely unheard of and un fathomable five years ago. It's really changing. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, so it sounds like that great strides have been made, but 
I also heard you reference earlier that, but we still have some room for improvement. So I know you, you, I'm sure you wanna like celebrate our victories, but gosh, there's so much more we wish we could do. I know it's just gotta be frustrating. I want to, um, I want to come back to that a little bit later about maybe what some pipeline stuff and some innovations that might we might be able to look forward to. But uh, I, I want to play off a second on what you mentioned about, you know, just how hard the chemo can be and that it, it can, surely this whole process is, is, is just not, it, the patient journey is just not an easy one here. So I've got two questions I want to ask you. Like, first, what is some practical advice for patients? I mean, it could be overwhelming to navigate diagnosis and treatment, to even speak up, you know, to even know what to ask the healthcare team. What, what would you say are just a couple of quick questions a patient should be asking the medical team? Gosh, it's such a great question. You know, I may need to ask my patients that question. I may not know. <laughs> they may not ask me. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, um, mainly just knowing what kind of impact is this going to have on my life? Um, you know, what can I expect with this treatment? And I think it's really important to know what the expectation is in terms of prognosis. Like, what am I getting out of this? So I'm going to invest, like, I'm going to lose my hair. I'm going to invest this potential side effect, or I'm going to lose my fertility. You know, what do I gain? Is this going to cure me? Is this just going to keep things at bay for a while? Is this going to help improve my symptoms? Like, what do I get out of that? And don't be afraid you know, to ask those questions. Yeah. And this, this might be a little hard to generalize given the array of treatment options and how they're combined, but what advice would you offer patients in terms of really what to expect during treatment? And I guess what I'm getting at there is, is what can they do to better prepare themselves so that they feel like they're walking in here a, a bit more empowered? Yeah, I think the most important thing to empower women is that they you know, they, they, they buy into the treatment. They know what the expectations are, um, that they're in that they're committed to it, that they, um, and that they feel heard, uh, by their providers and they're asking questions, you know, really in cancer, the best team, you know, doctors are busy and, um, we have, but we have teams that help us manage our patients and we have navigators on those teams and we have, nurses and, and nurse practitioners and physician assistants and, you know, really leverage the power of that team. Um, if you're not comfortable asking a provider a question, you know, ask members of the team or say, hey, you know, I'd really like for the doctor to say this to me, but we're just not getting an opportunity to talk about it. It's not coming up. Can you bring it up? Um, use those team, that team as a bridge between you and the physician. That's a great point. Um, that may be a little less intimidating. I can see that. And this is, this is an intimidating topic for a lot of reasons. I and mean, I think cancer in general is hard to talk about. There's a stigma around cancer, but when you're talking about a gynecologic cancer, I would expect that's probably even more true, right? And Oh my gosh, HPV it is beyond true. That's right. If you yeah. layer on HPV, I mean, these are, these are cancers that women are, you know, can be like at the bottom line is some people are just ashamed that they have this and they don't want, yeah. I think that's why women, you know, come in come in later, they get diagnosed at a late stage, they miss those opportunities for vaccines, they miss those pap smear opportunities, and they actually get cervical cancer um, because, you know, we layer all of this, you know, 
political and I don't want to, you know, call it garbage, but in a way it's garbage because it interferes with a woman's ability to, you know, take care of her own health. And and it's hard, you know, it, it can be hard to get a pap smear. Women are busy. They take care of everyone around them and they often will deprioritize themselves. And I think that's a very big aspect of cervical cancer management is because, you know, here, these are women who didn't get an opportunity for, you know, myriad of reasons to get a vaccine or didn't get an opportunity to get a pap smear. Yeah. So continuing with, with that, uh, one area where we get a lot of questions is around sex and intimacy with cervical cancer in the aftermath of treatment and talk about something that's hard to, oh my gosh, you have to talk with your healthcare team, you have to talk with your partner. It's just, that is a lot to ask somebody to do. And it's complex. You're talking about the emotional side of it, you know, the physical aspects of it. I, this is really an episode in itself. It's beyond our scope to explore today. But I did want to ask you, if somebody is, if sex is difficult after treatment, what would what advice would you offer to somebody to help them cope? I think it's difficult for so many reasons when we're talking about cervical cancer. The cause of the cancer is difficult. There's a lot of, you know, did my partner cheat on me? How did I get this HPV virus? Like, so that's that's a barrier. The second barrier is the treatment. The treatment changes the anatomy um, of you know, the, the, uh, the sexual organs and it completely changes sexual function. So, and, and we're not good about talking about that. Patients are glad to be alive. They often won't bring those things up to their providers because they don't want to say, they don't want their provider to feel like they're not grateful for all their provider did, you know, and, 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 you know, as providers, we have to be cognizant to, to, to bring it up. And I think we're getting better as that, at that, you know, as, as, as a profession, but, um, you know, my, my advice is just to, you know, you're not alone. Every single patient of mine is going through these same thoughts. Um, they're not bad. Um, and your provider is interested, even if they appear to be busy. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, because there are a lot of, they have a lot of patients, a lot of responsibilities. I can see where somebody might think they're getting blown off and really you're just moving in a thousand directions at one time. So that's a good point. Um, and I should probably stop for a second and just talk about HPV, the human papillomavirus. Um, for anybody who really wants to do a deep dive into HPV and its role in cervical cancer, we have a lot of resources on our website, just quickly, HPV, there are well over 100 types, and the types we talk about here, there are a few high-risk types that, of course, are associated with virtually all cases of cervical cancer, and we refer to HPV as a common cold of sex. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's something, if you have sex, you pretty much get HPV at some point, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of stigma and a lot of emotion around mm -hmm. that, so uh, if you want to drill down on HPV, we've got videos, more podcasts, lots of stuff for you, and we will link to all of that in the show notes. Um, just before we leave this question of intimacy, uh, I want to talk about partners. You know, sometimes we leave them out of the equation. Um, I mean, is there anything they need to know to support the patient? Um, what do you got there, Doc? What do you think? We do leave the partners out. And I have to tell you, you know, just I've tried to be sensitive to that and listen and I can tell you by far and away the most common reasons that partners have difficulty re-engaging in intimacy is that they're afraid they're going to harm their, their partner. Mm -hmm. 
They're afraid of harming them. They're afraid they'll make their cancer come back. They're afraid they gave it to them in the first place. They're afraid that they're going to break something because everything is so different. And probably they didn't really understand the anatomy, like on a clinical level from the get go. But now that it's all so different, it's a very hard adjustment and then nobody's talking about it. And so it's like this thing that they really just, you know, there's no space to, 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 to bring it up, but I, the partners must suffer. You know, it's, there's research on cervical cancer and that is the cancer that leads to the most, there's, there's marital breakup, um, divorce, uh, research, you know, I, non-marital relationships. Like, I don't think there's really much data out there. You may know better than I do, um, what's out there on non-marital relationships, but I do know that divorce rate is higher among women who have cervical cancer than any other gynecologic cancer. Uh, you know, I actually didn't know that, and that sounds like something worth exploring, and that just really points to just how complex this is and how many levels it really um, affects people. Um, yeah, I mean, we spend probably as much time uh, in my organization talking about the psychosocial impact, the relationship impact as we ever do. Uh, the medical side of it. I mean, that, that's, mm -hmm. really, that's really our, our bread and butter. You know, one of the, we used to have a, a, an article on our website called A Partner's Guide to When uh, the Person You Love Has Cervical Cancer. And for the longest time, that was among our most downloaded and accessed features. It was really just written, just, you know, here's how you can support your partner to help you understand what they're going through, why they're doing this, maybe why they're not doing that. And I, I think it's probably, a, as I'm listening to you, I think we need to update and maybe expand that a bit. So for another- That's great. Uh, I felt terrible. I didn't know about that. I need to use that in my practice. <laughs> there you go. I will definitely follow up with you. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's, it, that, like, again, that's a whole discussion in itself, but uh, thank you for giving us those insights and we'll, uh, we'll see what else we can do there. Um, clearly there's a need. Uh, let me ask you quickly about the research around potential new therapies, some that might work differently than some of the interventions currently used. I mean, we get a lot of questions about mm -hmm. what's in the pipeline, what's coming, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, can, can you help trans, you know, and what, one of the things we do is that we translate the science really for the lay public. So we're always curious and learning ourselves. So I'm curious, where are we with the research and what might the future hold regarding some new or innovative therapeutic options? Do tell. You got to get busy. The, the therapeutics is blowing up in cervical cancer. Um, it's really exciting. Um, so, you know, the overarching goal of research right now is to improve our cure rates and our opportunities to improve, improve cure rates are really at that, in that group of patients who are having their cancer recur after chemotherapy and radiation. The second opportunity is in the women that come in with metastatic disease. So those are our, really our unmet needs. Um, and that's how, from a research perspective, we approach it. Like where, what are our unmet needs and where can we make the most impact? And we think those are the places. The treatment is immune therapy um, by far and away. So immunotherapy has really sort of transformed many other cancers um, in oncology, melanoma, lung cancer, had a neck cancer, uh, colon cancer. This is cervical cancer is the next cancer to be transformed by immune therapy. Um, when we start with these new drugs, we put them in, we test them in patients who've failed all the other treatments and they're working. And those are, you know, the patients whom you would expect a new therapy to work at the least, uh, but they're working very well. Um, and then now we're moving it up into our earlier lines of treatment 
because now we don't want just to, you know, improve that time that people are living or that we don't want to just improve how long it takes for your cancer to come back. Now we want to use it to help your cancer never come back to improve that cure rate. Let me ask you about side effects. Would these immune therapies potentially be a little less toxic, a little less harsh for the patient? Do we know, what do we know about that? Such a great question. You know, we're, we're learning as we go, number one. Uh, number two, it appears that, um, you know, one of my colleagues called immune therapy a rose that has thorns. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people do great on immune therapy and have really hardly any side effects at all. Um, some people have pretty significant and even very severe and even fatal side effects of immune therapy. So it's not, it's not you know, completely um, an easy treatment to take. It's different from chemotherapy in that you don't lose your hair and you don't vomit when you're on, you know, you don't get nauseous when you're on immune therapy. Um, but it can have some really significant um, side effects. You really can get inflammation of any place in your body. You can get a rash in your skin inflammation. You can get colon inflammation and bloody diarrhea. You can get um, an inflammation of your thyroid gland and your thyroid gland not function, your adrenal glands, which make cortisol and respond to like stressful situations in our lives. Um, you know, there are several things that can go wrong. Luckily, those things are more uncommon um, and the very severe side effects are, are more rare with immune therapy. Um, and, but it's, you know, it's not without side effects, but the, you know, the, it's, what are you getting out of it? You know, that's what they should have. What am I getting out of this? If it's going to cure patients, then, you know, most of those, most of those side effects are short lived and treatable and it's worth it. If you're not being cured by it and you've got severe side effects, then it might be sort of a different risk benefit balance there, if that makes sense. It does. And, and it helped me to understand kind of where we are, the timeline here. Are these therapies now currently coming online? Or are we still a bit early? Are they still experimental? Where, what, what, when can we expect them if we don't have them already? So one immune therapy is approved um, after patients, um, after the tumors uh, come back uh, after that first chemotherapy. And um, it's right now restricted to a specific population that carries a biomarker called PDL1. Um, so right now we have an immune therapy called Keytruda that's uh, FDA approved for PDL1 positive um, recurrent cervical cancer. Um, we recently had um, a larger trial with a, a different immune therapy agent. Um, show activity or show positive results in the PDL1 negative uh, population. So that's forthcoming. Um, I don't have a timeline on that. Um, there are um, the other type of therapy that we've got in the pipeline is something called uh, uh, tumor infiltrative lymphocytes, where we take a patient's tumor and take the um, immune cells out of it and grow them in a lab and then sort of superpower them to go back and attack the patient's cancer. We infuse those back into the patient. And um, that therapy has shown really promising results and um, has you know, made its way very far through the phase two, um, uh, the phase two uh, trial setting. So that's probably coming online fairly quickly. And we do have some active non-immunotherapy options. Um, one just reported um, activity 
about a couple weeks ago and now is going up in front of the FDA in October. Um, so we'll probably by the fall have two new drugs and uh, FDA approved for cervical cancer. One that's an immune therapy and one that's not an immune therapy, but both really restricted to the later stages of disease. And, you know, what we really want to do is, you know, make these therapies available sooner so that we're curing more women with them instead of giving them, you know, when there are no other treatment options. Speaking of, patients for whom treatment options, uh, they're just running out and, and, and they're not responding. I, I know that sometimes participating in a clinical trial is an option, but I also know that it's apparently it's pretty difficult to recruit and retain people. Maybe that's the operative word, retain people in clinical trials. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, is this something that patients should be bringing up you know, when they have advanced disease with their provider? I could not. I, I mean, I've I'm biased. I've dedicated my whole life to clinical trials. Um, that's the only way we find these new treatments. Um, I think that clinical trials are a black box for patients and some, and for even some providers. Meaning, you know, it, what happens when I go on a clinical trial? What, what am I giving up if I enroll on a clinical trial? Am I, do I lose power and control over what happens to me if I'm on a clinical trial or how do I even get, you know, I want to go on a trial, but I don't have one anywhere near me and my provider is not talking about them. And when I ask questions, they don't know how to answer my questions about clinical trials. There's so much work to be done to help our patients access, to know about the trials and to access the trials. Um, only about 5% of adult patients go on clinical trials and pediatrics, it's like 90, 90 to 95%. And you would expect that to be the reverse, right? You would expect people to be much more hesitant to put their children on clinical trials. And really it's just the culture of the discipline. I mean, they, in pediatric oncology, that's just how they treat their patients. They put them on clinical trials and we don't do that well in adult oncology and we need we need to do a lot better but i can't tell you how important it is to get on clinical trials that's how we make faster progress that's how you get access to these treatments before they're available commercially and if anyone's frustrated with the rate of progress being slow it is because we are not getting women on our trials fast enough we have the trials it's just communicating that to the medical community getting that to the right ears and then getting patients to be interested and able to get to those studies. And I just want to mention for anyone interested in learning more about clinical trials, um, there are a couple of websites we refer to a lot. One is clinicaltrials.gov. Another is centerwatch.com. They're two really large databases of trials that are currently recruiting and you can search by you know, topic and location. And we'll, we'll add those links to the show notes on the podcast page. Um, yeah, uh, that is such great stuff. I, got, I just have one, one last question for you. How did you decide to do this work? A cervical cancer patient that I took care of as a resident. Um, she was young, you know, she had her whole life ahead of her and um, had surgery for cervical cancer, but it came back and, you know, it came back and this was, you know, 20 years ago when we had no treatment at all um, for her. And, um, you know, I took care of her as a resident and she said to me, you know, she said, you know, Leslie, you, you need to do this as a career. And I said that I could never do this as a career. You know, this is 
so, you know, I hate watching this happen to you and I could never do this as a job, but you know, her words resonated with me and I saw an opportunity to help make things better so that, you know, her life could have been better. You know, had she walked in the door today, you know, she, we probably still wouldn't have cured her, but we could have helped her live longer. We could have helped her live better. Um, it would have been a better, you know, experience for her. And, you know, I think the sky, you know, is the limit. I think that there's so much more opportunity um, to eradicate cervical cancer. And if we can't eradicate it to, you know, improve our cure rates from when we can't. Dr. Leslie Randall of the VCU Medical Center. Thank you so much. This is just fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And thanks to everybody who downloads and listens. We'll have more, so come back often. Uh, we're online at ashasexualhealth.org, of course. Follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha and be our friend on Facebook. So until next time, this is Fred Wine for ASHA. So long, everybody. Financial support for this podcast has been provided by Seijin Incorporated.